welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. I guess we're going to do Fracture Line uh, just the crew today, right guys? We're doing a little bit of a getting yeah. to know you episode which is a little bit, um, I know, sounds a little bit peculiar because I suspect many of our listeners think, no, I already know way too much about them and wish they would just stop talking. However, I recently bumped into one of our listeners when I was at East, and the, the funny sort of ironic part about it was that they didn't know me or anything about me. They just said they recognized my voice, and they said, oh, you work for CWIS. Yeah, I recognize your voice. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm Sarah Whitbeck. I work for the Chessel Injury Society. I'm like, oh, that's what you do. And it occurred to me, they're probably, listen, because they've seen it, or they've, you know, seen it on Twitter, or they've, they've you know, somehow had a connection, but they maybe don't actually know, like, your lead-in says our names, but doesn't actually say who we are or what we do. It, it occurred to me that maybe we ought to, you know, kind of have a little uh, getting to know you, because maybe our voices aren't quite enough. Well, I think that's a great idea. Sarah, tell everyone about you and CWIS. How did this start? My my story is maybe more peculiar or more um, unique than some people's. So I was working for Intermountain Healthcare for 15 years. I was um, uh, part of the, the leadership team in the chief medical office and um, was accountable for education, professional education, and um, had worked with Dr. Tom White on a variety of educational programs, uh, trauma programs. And he, as we were finishing one program, he was saying, you know, I do this chest wall injury repair, rib repair at that time was what we had started calling it. And he said, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, maybe there would be an opportunity to have a rib meeting with, with some of the people that I know. And I was like, okay, well, let's do a needs assessment. Let's let's, you know, do this formally. If we're going to do it, you know, then we really need to kind of do a deep dive, make sure that we're not being, you know, there's no exposure financially for the organization, etc. Because at that point it was, um, we were doing it on behalf of Intermountain Healthcare. And um, so, you know, I would have to pitch it to senior leadership in terms of ensuring that, you know, we were covered, we were going to be covered financially, that it was a good idea from you know educational modality perspective that we were covering all the needs etc and so we we dove in with um, contacting a variety of people we reached out to all the people really that Dr. White knew within the field connected with some uh, folks from industry so that they could kind of help us connect with other people that maybe were unknown to him at that time but were, that were plating and um, started planning a meeting in, in, um, in Park City that was intended to happen um, in 2016 and or that we had planned for 2016. So we spent about two years planning that first meeting, really just kind of pouring over all the lists and the plans and, and all that kind of stuff. And then um, when we were executing that meeting, then, you know, at, or at that meeting, we started talking about some research and some, you know, collaboration and things that people would want to do. And they said, well, you know, we should, we should have some kind of small nonprofit so that we can you know, gather together and, and ask for some research dollars, etc. And I had started another nonprofit um, here in the state of Utah for um, CME providers that was just kind of a, a group of CME providers from, from all different um, areas. And so I knew how to start one. 
and said, well, yeah, sure, I'd, you know, be happy to help you, just kind of in my spare time. <laughs> and um, then it just sort of grew and grew, <laughs> and very quickly it became obvious that it was going to be kind of a conflict of interest, that we were separating from Enron Healthcare, and it was going to be a conflict of interest for me to stay there and, you know, be part of CUS. And so I decided to sort of look a leap, and um, if there's ever a time to you know, leave your job and make a bold move. It's, it's, you know, in your mid thirties. Right. So I <laughs> decided that was, that was what I was going to do. And, um, then <laughs> spent I think about five years doing consulting on the side as well as CUS so that then, um, I had time for, for both roles. Um, cause I knew I couldn't do basically a full-time job as well as CUS. And so, you know, kind of balancing that back and forth and, now um just doing c with full time so I tell people about your your uh running career because it's very impressive tell them how many miles you've done this year and you know what you. really motivates you thank you i appreciate that i i um you know i tend to work things out when i'm on my feet so when i've got something that i need to kind of think through i i get out on a run so i i like to run a lot and um well i run and cycle primarily so that's definitely my passion, and um, my goal is to run about 200 miles a month. So I hit that last year and um, was super excited about it. I hit it just right, you know, right at the very end of the the year. I ended up um, catching COVID in December, right before Christmas, and so I thought I was going to miss my target because I was not feeling well and you know having trouble with taking deep breaths, of course, and. Um, so it kind of slowed my my normal pattern down, but uh, worked it out right right there at the end. So it was it was close to missing my my 2021 mark, but worked out. So yes, that is my that's definitely my thing. I'm working my way through running um, running a race in every state. So I'm through um, 37 states uh, in terms of running a half marathon in every state. So. I'm sure I'll be, you know, coming, coming someone's, someone's way pretty soon here. It's enjoyable. All right. So Dr. K, let's probe into you. Tell everyone who you are, but how did you get involved with CWIS? What brought you here? All right. Uh, well, I'm Adam K. I'm the current president of CWIS. I live in Kansas now, but I'm a New Yorker, uh, so I still have that uh, personality. They, have, they always remind me about that, that I still have a New York personality. How I got to CWIS is... It, yeah, is how Sarah Ann was talking about how uh, Dr. White spoke with people um, in industry. I got a, I think it was either an email or a random phone call from this guy named Tom White who said, hey, I hear you plate ribs. We're having a group of people meeting in Park City. We want you to come and, you know, come aboard and you can be faculty. And I'm like, okay, pretty cool. I assume everyone was faculty that year. Um, for the only three <laughs> of us, I assume everyone was. So I don't know how you guys money that year. I bet you that whole that every single person was a faculty member, and then, uh, and then just the companies paid uh, paid for the the food. Um, <laughs> but it was just it was amazing. Uh, you know, I've been to West, I've been to East, um, I've been to the ACS, and it was there was no camaraderie there. You were just another person. Um, you didn't feel like you. I, at least for me, I didn't feel like I belonged. I wasn't in an academic center, so I felt East was very academic. Uh, West, I was a resident when I went there, and I loved it. But um, again, it was really hard to be, be a part of because they have all those quotas, and um, I felt like I was just like hugged in to join CWIS. Um, 
part of this will be in my my in my presidential address because you know one of the first people I met was Dr. Gross. Really, we we sat together um, at the dinner. And, uh, it was just I just felt like I belonged. Like Dr. Morris said in his in his podcast, which I wasn't part of, but I just listened to today. You know, if you do something, you offer to do something, you show that you're you're, you're worth. Then you'll just keep joining and becoming more and more. So I was initially on the membership committee, and then they saw that I was interested in education. So all of a sudden, I became patient education committee. Um, we did a bunch of things. We actually got things um, published and got things moving forward. I got told um, a couple of years ago that I think you're probably going to be a leader at some point. And I figured five, ten years from now, I'd be a leader. And then, like, next year, I was like, huh, you're president now. I'm like, oh, I'm president. Um, we all have our, um, our our own goals and objectives. Um, I, and, and I think that's very interesting to see, you know, there was definitely like Dr. Parachi was very much into the research part of it. Dr. Gaspari was reimagining CWIS just because we turned from a small society into a bigger society. I think that's, that's Dr. Gaspari's major move. Um, my move is more of the you know, branching out. Um, I think it's part of my ideas. It just, it's just really interesting how everyone has a little bit of, of what they themselves are that they're going to you know, add to it. My wife is much. My wife's an introvert. I'm more of an extrovert in that sense, and I'm I'm trying to make CWIS more extroverted and seeing you know. And we have you know we got we worked with East. We worked with um, ASER. We're working with SES. We just we're, we're continuously moving forward, becoming a, a presence and a, and a name. And I'm just so excited to be part of that. Dr. K, you have a massive family, and you're such a family man. People need to know about that. Tell us a little bit about it. I was born in New York. I was one of four kids. Um, I moved to, uh, after New York, I moved to Philadelphia, because everyone needs to move to Philadelphia at some point in their medical career. Um, and um, I did my residency in Philadelphia. Uh, met my wife there. She's also a doctor. She's a pediatric plastic surgeon. She'll be on a future um, podcast, so yeah. you get to meet her a little bit. We have six kids. We were not thinking of having six kids. It was never in our thought process at all. I figured four because <laughs> you always have four kids. And so um, first kid, um, her name is Abigail. She's 12. Um, she's great. She's really smart and a go-getter. She just started a uh, some sort of a food drive. They all they, they made food today. We, my wife made um, cinnamon buns for uh, this food sale they had and she's the director of it I'm not sure how but just showed up and so she's she's doing great my second son his name is asa asa and he was a bit of a surprise we thought everything was going well it was like the easiest pregnancy my wife ever had and when he was born he was a bit floppy and we uh, found that he had down syndrome and so that was a big shock to the system um to everything more or less changed our lives because uh, we were not ready for that um, but we had a lot of support in the Kansas City area, much more than you would have um, on the East Coast if we were there. Uh, we realized that we needed to have a little bit of a support system for him, and so we weren't going to just stop at two. Um, and so we waited about two years just to get our bearings straight, and then we had Amelia. Um, Amelia is an amazing go-getter also. She, is, she tells me that she's the best at everything, and I think she will be. <laughs> um, you just got to give her some time. She will be. Um, She's very empathetic. Um, I always thought she'd be the doctor, but now Abigail thinks she wants to be a doctor, so we'll see whatever happens with that. Amelia is, um, Amelia in Hebrew means um, God's work. So I always think that's very interesting in, in how she is. After Amelia, we had Asher, who's fiery redhead, who's seven years old. 
and he is all over the place and a true a true boy. Um, and he, he and you know because Asa has his syndrome, he's my true like first son in a sense of doing all the things that the boy would be doing. Where all the sports and everything else, we do flag football and um, soccer and baseball and all those things together and stuff. So. Um, we just did archery actually recently, and that was really cool. And we may take some more archery classes because I actually am not so bad at it. I didn't realize I was going to be good at it. Awesome. It was my first time. It was his first time. We did it together. But we're like, okay, we have to have another one. So we had another one. And um, so this this one, of course, is the you know, fifth child, and he's the one where you know everyone else was a regular birth, and there no problems there in a sense. And he was the one who was a C-section. He was the one that was different. <laughs> he was just. Just had to be different in every which way. And so we named him Avery, which in Hebrew is Ivri, which actually means unique or different. And he is. It's just, it's so interesting. He is so smart. He's going to be going to kindergarten and his, he had like a kindergarten roundup and the teacher was just blown away. She would ask him to count to 20 and he's like, one of the, he did the whole thing with no problem. And she's like, well, why don't you do it? Skip two. Let's skip two. Let's do two, four, six. He goes, okay, one, three, five, seven, nine. Like, like just amazing. Um, and so then we were done. Like, I'm going to come, we're done. My wife was like, I'm not having a, another child or anything else, we're done. And then we found online, believe it or not, because um, that's how you buy everything nowadays, right? You just buy everything online. On Facebook, a friend of mine posted to my wall about this little girl who was Jewish, who lived in Brooklyn, and who had Down syndrome. And they were putting her up for adoption. And I had no idea what the story with the family was, but this girl looked really cute and just the whole, just the idea that, you know, we already know what we were doing with Down syndrome and everything else. We figured, you know, we should look into it. I, uh, I called the adoption agency and they're like, listen, kids with Down syndrome, everyone wants them because they're really cute. They're really easygoing and they're, they're loving kids. So, you know, you don't have a home assessment. You have nothing done. So just don't worry about it. And so we're like, okay. But my wife and I were like, you know, we believe in this thing. And again, this is part of my talk as well. <laughs> but uh, about something about Beshared, it's something that's supposed to happen. And so we um, we like, well, let's try it, see what happens. So I went and called an adoption agency, which happened to be two miles from my house. And I said, hi, can you get me a quick home evaluation? They're like, well, that part's, that part's easy, but you have to get all the paperwork done. So I'm like, okay, well, tell me what I need to get. In two days, I got all the paperwork done. They came to the house, they did their home assessment, and within about two to three weeks, we had our assessment all set up. And usually this is like a three to four month process. So we did it in about you know quarter time. And then, uh, so we supply, we, have, we have supply everything to the adoption agency and it's like, okay, don't call us. We'll call you. Stop bugging us. You know, this kid, loved, everyone loves her. Just don't, don't even try it. So I'm like, okay, fine, whatever you want. Two weeks later, they called me back and said, you know what? You're the family. So I'm like, <laughs> all right. So awesome. The fa- like, however, the, other family, okay. the parents want a letter from you because they really want to understand what the story is. So we sent them a letter hoping, because we found that about them now, we were hoping actually to convince them to keep their child because it was, you know, we, I felt that it was probably just a, too emotional initially, but think about it a little bit more before you just give away your child. And we sent this whole letter and explained to them how, you know, how difficult it was initially, but it's so much better now and it's, it's really important. And they just said like, oh, you're definitely the family for our kid now. And so when she was four months old, we adopted Ava. And that is a crazy experience. If anyone's ever adopted a child, you walk into a building with an empty stroller and then you walk out two hours later with a baby in your hand. That is, that is just unbelievable. He's yours. That's so cool. All right. So, Mark, what's, 
What's your story, Mark? I don't really have a great story. I mean, come on, I'm brand new, right? So I got I went to fellowship one day, and Tom White called me just like he called you, and he said, hey, you know what? I got a job for you. Do you know anything about podcasting? And I said, absolutely not, Tom. I, like, don't even text people, you know? I don't even use a computer. <laughs> and he said, well, you, you'll pick it up. Why don't you do it? I should I should back up a little bit. I worked with Dobin in Mass, so I was one of his residents for... Uh, a couple of rotations, and uh, I started playing playing chess with him, and we played chess in my residency too. I had Dr. Gal- uh, Christian Galvez is a you know, thoracic surgeon here, and he he kind of taught me too. So I joined CWIS as a resident and knew Dobin, and kind of just knew all of your names, and I thought like you guys were gods. Not that you're not gods, but I was like, whoa, way way above me, you know. <laughs> and then like Tom White calls me one day who, you know, I thought was like a god and he's like, Hey, do you know who I am? And I'm like, Yeah, I freaking know who you are <laughs> you know? And and that the rest is history. Yeah. But the story of medicine for me is what was interesting. I was in the army I, I joined the army after college and I was gonna be a career army guy. I, I, I climbed professionally for the army. I was a what's called an assault climber. And I started climbing professionally for Black Diamond and Petzl, the climbing companies. And I was just going to climb and be in the Army forever. And then uh, I was working on a lab on top of Pikes Peak one year and um, with a couple of ED docs. And they looked at me and said, Mark, you could, you could probably do a little bit more <laughs> if you wanted to. So then I um, just kind of got a bug and chose, chose medicine just because I was kind of already in that field in terms of uh, alt- high-altitude research. I was attached to a high-altitude research team. So I got into med school. I didn't think I was going to get into med school, but I got into med school, and then I had to leave the uh, active duty army, and the rest was history from there. So it was a, a weird background that was never supposed to be in medicine, uh, and I'm so glad I did it. It's the best thing uh, for myself and my family. So it was kind of a weird way to medicine. That's me. Tom, let's hear from you. How did you come to CWIS, or how did CWIS come to you? Well, uh, thanks for the question, Mark. I've had a front row seat for the last seven years. This idea of didn't start as a society. It started as a, you know, why don't we bring rib fracture surgeons uh, together to sort of de-silo them and discuss uh, technique, research ideas. And it was Sarah's idea. She said, well, let's, why, don't you, why don't you organize a meeting and we'll host it. Intermountain will host it. And it was really that. The idea for the first CWIS, CWIS Summit was that really that straightforward. The first year was uh, was really exciting. We I started making some phone calls. I generated a list. We generated a list of thought leaders and early adopters, and I just started calling them, if I remember. I mean, I, I probably sent a few emails, but I think mostly it was just pick up the phone and say, hey, are you interested? Would you come to a meeting in Park City in, in spring of 2016 if we organize something? And uniformly... The answer was absolutely. Love to do that. How can I help? I vividly remember these two surgeons sitting in the front row. They were both from Brazil, and they looked like they had planned to be there for years. I mean, they just it was just so matter of fact. Of course we'd come to a meeting about rib fracture repair halfway around the world being sponsored by a couple of yahoos that we don't know. Why not? Why wouldn't we? Kind of thing. You know what I mean? And, and Germany and the U.K., and we had some Canadians there, and we had Aussies there. This is the first year. It was intensely gratifying and stressful because, you know, we had to, I felt like we had to produce a product that would, I didn't want them to think they wasted their time or, or their energy or their money and that they would come back if we did it again. And the response was overwhelming. Please do this again next year. So we did. 
And it was at that meeting when we decided to form a society and part ways with Intermountain uh, officially. There were there were issues relate uh, uh, you know with respect to revenue sharing and all this kind of stuff that really made it incompatible. We were probably more upset about it than they were. I don't think they really care that much, to be honest with you. Uh, I think they, I think they regret it a little bit now, but but at the time you know, it was fine with them. It was we were a headache for them because we we were we were embracing a technology and a meeting that had lots of baggage from a conflict of interest or potential conflict of interest standpoint. You know, just the nature of in, you know uh, doing a procedure that was this this dependent on technology and and the, and the companies that build those plates. So there, there was they were challenged by that. I think they were challenged too because we had so many facets we wanted to add. You know, as, we, as it started and we were saying, well, we want to do this research project. Well, what about this? And, you know, and it was, was sort of growing into more than just a meeting. You know, it started out with just a meeting right. a year and it very quickly became so much bigger than that. And right. that wasn't the function of the department I was running. And so then I was in this weird, right. awkward situation of, you know, kind of having this job on the side, but still my other job that supported the meeting. And, you know, so it was a back and forth kind of thing where it was hard to determine, you know, kind of when I was, when I was committing this volunteer time versus how much of it was for the meeting, you know? And, and so it was very clear that my time was stressed and needed to, you know, that we were at a bifurcation point. And so I think that kind of added to it as yeah. well is that we needed to, we needed to fly on our own, especially from a revenue perspective. If we were going to start asking for grants for, you know, as non-flow was coming up and things like that, if we were going to be asking for grant money for research projects, that wasn't going to work with Intermountain in terms of, you know, or they wanted to keep a significant portion, which I totally understand. Um, but it, for the success of the organization and the projects, we needed to separate. So it worked out smoothly. It just, at the time, it felt very threatening of like, Oh my gosh, are we ready? Are we ready to be, you know, kicked out of the nest? Like, are we ready to fly on our own? And, and you know, it took a while for us to actually fly, but, but I think we, we scrambled a lot yeah. and, you know, that bootstrap, that bootstrap style worked. I think, I think we, uh, we exemplify that old adage, you, if you can't dazzle them with your brilliance, then baffle them with your bullshit. I mean, I think, I really think that the people who embrace the idea of a society and we're all for it, were much more confident of its success than we were. Uh, I think we just did a really good job of acting confident, like, you know, this is what we had planned all along, and of course it's going to work, And because we just, we had this incredible buy-in from, you know, Drs. Lautenberg, Dr. Piracci, Dr. Serrani, Dr. Dobin. These these are these were all, don't want to leave anybody out of that, but that initial cadre of, of champions was so supportive. I think it reflected, first of all, everybody likes Sarah Ann and wants to hang out with her. That was... <laughs> That was the that was the major thing. But the second, the other important piece I think was that the other societies, AAST, West, East, were not meeting the needs of these surgeons who really wanted more to do, more to learn, more to teach, more to you know they wanted to embrace this new technology. They were getting pushback. These papers that were there weren't making their way onto their under their agendas and et cetera. And they really you know a format or a forum for this endeavor and we just were there at the right time captured lightning in a bottle i would th i would say i've said many yeah. times but that's really what I we did and then at that first 
that first meeting, 2017, I'm sorry, the second meeting, a year later, it was abundantly clear that we we needed to form a society. In fact, I remember standing up in the really nice atrium fireplace area there in the in the new park, and we just started signing people up. I think Dr. Paracci was number one, wasn't he? Dr. Or was it Dr. Lundberg? Lundberg has the, the very Dr. first Lundberg membership. Number yes, one. and at that meeting, he right. was elected to be the first president as well. But I was right. going to say, one of the right. things that I think, um, you know, where CWIS really filled the need or there was a paucity was in non-industry rib education. You know, none of the none yeah. of the larger organizations were necessarily doing a significant portion of education or, you know, they would have one talk in in three or four days of a large society meeting, right? But because it was a newer technology and, you know, there was just so much growth happening, I think then there was this whole, you know, group that was saying, well, how are we doing what we're doing? We're all doing it, you know, somewhat similar, somewhat different, you know, let's talk about this and let's, let's learn from other people's best practices. And there wasn't really a way to do that outside of the industry. And so I think um, and while those courses are very valuable and, and you know, of course, we, we are glad that they're, they're doing them to teach how to use their product, I love that we have so many educational resources like the Journal Club, like the, the case review, where people can learn agnostic of the, the product that they're using. They can learn about rib fracture repair and, or, you know, chest wall injury repair, I should say, and, and be able to then improve their practice, you know, because that's, that wasn't really happening at the large societies. I think that was where the, right. you know, kind of the confluence was, was that there were two two areas where the needs weren't necessarily being met. And so it was just kind of rose up out of that need. And, and so I think that's one of the reasons that people that are committed to it and that have been a part of it since the beginning are really, you know, passionate about it because they recognize that in that moment a need was met that otherwise wasn't there. And people that are just joining now I think they're kind of looking at it like, well, of course this is here, you know, like it just seems so natural, sure. you know. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think there's, I think there's kind of an interesting push-pull, you know, that, that we get to see having a front row seat, having been here from the beginning. Well, just one more comment about the other societies, which I enjoy and embrace and applaud. And they obviously do the wealth of, of practice that, they, that they're obligated to cover is so significantly larger than ours that we we're we're a niche group. There's no question about it. But early on in the discussions were, well, how are we going to legitimize ourselves and the science so that we can get our publications and our abstracts onto the podium of these other societies? That was our early goal. It's clear now that that's that's not our goal. Our goal is to foster the science, get people to submit their work to our society meeting, and it's. I think it's safe to say that this is the meeting that people want their chest wall research uh, to be where where they would like it to be presented and potentially published. So that that's an interesting change uh, in in the way we looked at things back in 2017-2018 to, 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 to uh, compare with now. I think that's a good point. I also think one of the things we have to consider with that is we don't want to be shouting in a bucket, right? Just to ourselves. And so I think while people are, you know, I hear regularly from people, oh, I'm holding this one for the summit. You know, I'm going to submit this, this to the summit. And we had this, you know, huge deposit of, of abstracts. I, I think we also need to be encouraging our members to go out and submit at their, you know, at the larger trauma meetings, the larger thoracic, the larger, you know, orthopedic meetings. Because otherwise, we're all, you know, talking amongst ourselves, which is great. But I also think the larger communities need to hear about the cool new research that you guys are doing, you know, and 
and how octogenarians, you know, are going to do better if you plate them because there, you know, there has been a, you know, perception otherwise heretofore, and now we've got research that demonstrates, you know, that that's not the case, and you know, TBI and things like that. I think if we're not pushing the members to also go out and take their great work to other locations, I think we've got a missed opportunity. And so I think this is one of the things I want to discuss in the town hall at the summit is where that sweet spot is. You know, we want we want your good research, but we also want you sharing it, you know, at, with broader audiences outside of just yeah. chest wall injury surgeons. And so how do we how do we balance that? You know, and as a society, is it's not our call where people submit to, of course, but that doesn't mean that we aren't looking at the overall, you know, market and being able to say there's this huge market of patients that that could do better if if everybody knew X Y Z. You know, and how do we make sure that everybody knows X Y Z? Well, broader, you know, broader meetings with 1,200 people, that they're going to do better. I mean, that that's the message is going to be disseminated further, and so I think that. There, there is a need for us to, to encourage other people to get to podium, you know, in those larger meetings and to continue publishing research as much as we can and things like that so that we can continue the conversation and continue to improve on our mission of trying to change, you know, the care for chest wall injured patients. That's well said. I think if we look back at our vision, I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. I think we are influencing care in a positive way for these patients. I think chest wall surgeons are better informed. Their patient selection is better. Their technique is better. Um, they're asking the right question. I think all those things are true because of CWIS. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. I agree. I mean, did you ever think that this is where you would be? Did you ever have these interests? And in, I mean, you're a global leader now. You know, you've started a large society that's going yeah, to change the world. I struggle, with I struggle with labels like that, Mark. I don't really, f people say that. I, at some level, I guess it's, there's, there's some truth to it, but I, I didn't, I didn't come to this expecting this sort of influence, I guess is maybe the best word. I, and I, and I believe me, it humbles me every day because I don't feel, you know, we all have some imposter syndrome in me, in them. And I, I think it's an area where I struggle a little bit. I, I, I like it. I embrace it. And I, I'm grateful for it. I know it won't last forever. And I'm just, I'm relying on friends like you and Sarah and Adam to get the hook and drag me off stage or off the screen as soon as I become unworthy of the of the role. Believe me, I won't be offended by that. <laughs> Hopefully I'll pull myself off before that happens so that somebody else doesn't have to feel guilty about doing it. But but no, I didn't, I didn't expect uh, my career to go this direction, really. I mean, I really didn't. This whole idea of fixing ribs just fascinated me for some reason. We fix everything else and these patients are languishing and we have this technology to potentially help them and it's not likely to hurt them. Why don't we use it? And so it just made sense to me from the very beginning. It just seems so logical to me to try it, uh, particularly on the bad the patients with bad chest chest wall. And we, we got lucky. We had early successes on some really nasty patients who wouldn't have done well otherwise. And then the horse was out of the barn for us. But I didn't expect the whole CWIS thing to do what it's done. Uh, and it makes me, it staggers me to think, what's what's it going to be like in five years from now? All these additional people and energy and funding and interest, what's going to happen to us? Where are we going to go? I think, and I think it's important to, to think about that because if we're not deliberate about the planning, I think 
we could go astray. So I'm looking very much looking forward to uh, having a hand in directing, guiding, shaping the future of this society uh, moving forward. Tom, you're 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 also quite the athlete. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about. I know you're a big skier. You're a great fisherman. Tell tell the listeners about some of your greatest hobbies. I'm very much a wannabe good athlete. <laughs> I pride myself in staying fit. I like staying fit because I just like to be able to at any time go hike a mountain or go fishing or go skiing or something. I don't, you know, this idea of having to get in shape to do something. Uh, we all know how challenging that can be, and I've learned about. 20 years ago that it's better to stay on top of it than to do the roller coaster thing and get in shape for these activities. So I, I try to stay as fit as I can. I exercise almost every day, sometimes twice. But I do, I do, I've been skiing since I was a, a boy. Been on the ski patrol at Snowbird now for the last decade or so. I just retired this year actually from that. I've given, given the younger kids a chance. I love to fish. I love to fly fish. I don't really like to just sit there and with a bobber in the water, but I like to actively hunt the fish and f- cast to them very much like hunting, you know, with a gun. I just don't do that. It's it's similar in in, the, in that way. I like to run. I like to ride my bike. And cross Again, the Grand Canyon. Uh, I would enjoy talking about that for just a few moments. Um, starting in yeah. 2007, I decided uh, at the at the uh, urging of a friend of mine, uh, uh, Chris Lloyd. He said, "Let's." I cross the Grand Canyon every year. You should come with me. And I, at that point, I didn't even know you could cross the Grand Canyon on foot. I'd only seen it from the rim or from the air. And I thought, well, okay. So I showed up with hiking boots and the backpack and, <laughs> you know, signal, signal flares and a space blanket and water pure. You know, and, uh, but what I didn't realize is that we were going fast because we had to get across it in less than a day. And that first crossing was 11 or 12 hours, lots of blisters, lots of lots of heartache. But I, I, I saw that it could be done much faster, but more finesse and form. And so then... That started a streak that is now intact from 2007 until now, where I've crossed the Grand Canyon every year on foot, sometimes twice, sometimes over and back continuously. Done that three times. And it's still the most enjoyable thing I do athletically every year. And I actually think I'm getting better at it than I each year, just a little stronger at it. My fastest time was just a couple of years ago at five hours and 12 minutes, which is not world-class by any means. Believe it or not, people have run across the Grand Canyon all the way over and all the way back, 48 miles in under five hours. Uh, actually, uh, uh, close to four hours. It's a, it's a remarkable feat. Uh, those athletes are amazing. But if anybody has any interest in joining us for the Grand Canyon, you're certainly welcome. We, we typically do it in May, and then uh, October are the two months that it's best done. And uh, oftentimes, it happens twice a year in those months. So if you have any interest in giving us a try you should you should let us know i think uh i think the one thing you are tom and sarah and adam is humble and i'm very happy that our listeners get to know a little taste of who you guys are so thanks for a good episode bye guys bye